All right, so when I was a kid, what I hold in my hand was one of my most treasured things. And you're like, it's just tennis balls. But I loved baseball. And we lived in a neighborhood, and rather than pay for a multitude of broken windows, my mom and dad declared a rule. You can only play with baseballs at the Little League. When you're in the neighborhood, I want you to use tennis balls. And so these became a treasured commodity for me. And um, one of the favorite things in the world, and I've already done it um, in a previous service, was to get a brand new can and some of you know this little bit of joy. When you open it and there's that first pop, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Uh, it's just that perfect sound and you know the air escaped. And then, this is really weird, then you get to sniff it, right? A brand new can of tennis ball smells amazing. Some of you are nodding your heads because you understand and know. But um, these were treasure because every one of these meant we could keep playing ball. And they especially became precious because about my second year in our neighborhood, um, uh, the new fad or craze among everybody was, let's see how many fences we can put up. And it started with a few little chain link ones, and I was borderline ninja vaulting those things. You know, you get enough speed, put your hands on the top bar, and maybe one foot on the way up, but when I got a little older and taller, if you could just get enough speed and do a full, a perfect clean vault, that was awesome. And my dad's rule was, if it's a chain link fence, you can, you can go over it, more, more appropriately, Chris, go through the gate, and you can get your ball. But a lot of my neighbors started putting up the big privacy fences, you know, the dog-eared fences. And there were some good reasons for that. Some of them had put in pools and stuff like that. And rather than have random neighborhood kids fall into your pool, it made a lot of sense to put that up. Except that frequently we would hit our treasured, holy, well, maybe not holy and sacred, but treasured balls over that fence. And dad's rule was you can't go in there without permission. And so I had one, we had neighbors uh, just around the corner from us, the Hogan's, and I hit so many tennis balls in their backyard. And then we'd have the, the five-minute fight about which one of us was going to go over, knock on the door, and ask for our ball. And we would sit there with our faces right up to that fence, and you could see your ball's like 10 feet away, and you're so close to something you want, but it's, it, it, it might as well be 100 miles. And, and, and I don't know how many balls they probably ended up keeping, how many actually land in their pool, but um, we did lose a lot. But it was a barrier between me and something I wanted desperately. Let me ask you a question as we get going this morning about barriers you've encountered. And they, they might be fences, they might be obstacles, uh, seasons where you couldn't get to where you wanted to go. Has there been a time in your job where you really wanted a promotion or another role and for some reason there was a barrier between you and accomplishing that new season of life. Have you ever experienced that with the sport? Like you really wanted to play varsity but maybe you just didn't have the skill set to play at that level and so it was frustrating or maybe there was political things going on within the sports at your school and you weren't on the coach's good list so you didn't get to make the team or get as much playing time as you wanted. You know, there's lots of barriers like that. And I think when we're in a moment of life where we're encountering an obstacle, we know how frustrating it can be, how, how it just burns and we're like, this isn't right. And we would do almost anything to get to the other side of it. But sometimes we're on the inside and we're used to getting what we want, and it can become very easy to forget about what those obstacles are like. So let me ask you another question. Do you remember what it was like and maybe how it was difficult to come to church for the first time? And maybe a few of you are literally like, yeah, that's today. Welcome to North Terrace. We're so glad you're here. And if you've been coming recently, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. And we hope this is a place that feels like home, 
But we also understand sometimes those first visits, man, you're pulling in the parking lot and maybe there's that little knot in your gut like, please don't let this be a disaster. I just don't want it to be bad. And we hope it wasn't. We try hard to make sure you have a great experience here. But sometimes if you don't know the the local how-tos of a place, there can be some anxiety about that. Like, Like even things like with church, how do I know where to sit? How do I know where the restrooms are? If you have children, how do I know where to get them down there? There's so many things that could be barriers that keep somebody from being comfortable and engaging with what is the most important story in the world. And and we need to remember, especially if you've been coming a long time, that it's not easy for everybody to come to church. And the longer you've been here, probably the more we need to be sensitive to that. But we're going to continue today with our Jesus Is series. And this week, we're going to look at this concept of Jesus is a wrecking ball. And we want to have everybody have a chance to answer and finish the statement, Jesus is, and answer it in the way that, that is where you are in life right now and who Jesus is to you. And, and we believe that is an important experience because how you finish this statement determines who you are. It determines how you live and what you'll do. So we don't just casually do this, and it isn't just a gimmick. We believe that you do this in your heart and your soul, and it begins to ripple into the rest of your life. And the idea that Jesus is a wrecking ball, how could that be in a positive and encouraging thing? Well, we mean it this way, and we're going to spend a lot of time looking at how Scripture affirms this, that Jesus loves to tear down the barriers that would keep people from him and then through him to God. And so he loves to say, whatever would block, let's get it out of the way. And let's make sure that people can get to the most important things, which is Jesus, the son of God, who tells the story of God's great love for us. So we're gonna look at a great story in just a bit, but here's gonna be our key thought this morning, and that's this. We need to remove barriers between people and Jesus. We we need to be active partners with God and his son Jesus in what is happening here. So we, you and I, we're part of a team that needs to not build barriers, not put up more walls, not keep people from what is most important, but removes them so that people can connect with who Jesus is. And I hope that there's a party that like, okay, that makes sense. Why wouldn't I wanna be part of that? But as we walk through some things this morning, I want to I challenge you. I've actually prayed that, that some of us would be disturbed this morning in the right ways for good reasons and, and then motivated to make some changes. And I also hope that some of us find great comfort this morning in the fact that Jesus wants to remove any barriers between us and God and wants us to connect with the greatest story there is. So... Without any further ado, let's get into scripture. If you got your Bibles and your Bible apps, we're going to go to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to spend time reading verses 17 through 26. And as we read through this, I'm going to do it in some bite-sized chunks because this is such a great story with some rich depth to it that I just want to pause at certain parts and help you see what's going on in some of these moments in it. And it's a story centered on Jesus, but also has some other key players on it. And you're going to see in this story how Jesus really is a wrecking ball, but how those who follow him will be wrecking balls too. And maybe that's something we can walk away with and start getting in our our heads already. How, if Jesus is a wrecking ball and we want to be like him, how can we mirror that behavior and make sure that other people are able to get to who Jesus is? So I hope you follow along with me again in your Bibles, your Bible apps, and let's pick up in verse 17. 
On one of those days, as he was teaching, uh, Pharisees, teachers of the law, were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem. Uh, we'll keep going on here. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing, with, bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. We'll stop there, and we're actually going to go back to some of that first stuff. Okay, so here's what's going on. Jesus is starting to get some acclaim, some fame, and his reputation is going out. And so the word gets out that he is in a certain town. And in that season, uh, then people say, I'm going to come and I want to hear the teacher. So he had a reputation. They would have said, Jesus is a teacher. And this scripture indicates that he was also in a season where he was doing some healing. So apparently there were probably people who were paralyzed, who were starting to walk, blind people who started to see, deaf people who started to hear. These are common things that Jesus um, is giving credit for in his healings throughout the gospels. So the word was out. And apparently, then people came from a large region. In fact, we see some, some indication. Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem. Imagine if you would, almost like a corridor, like southern Cleveland, Canton, Zanesville, down to Athens, kind of that north to south corridor. We're talking a pretty decent footprint here. And they didn't hop in the local minivan or take the bus down or anything like that. They walked. And they all made a special journey down to hear of this man, Jesus, to, to see him, be near him. And they didn't have the horseshoe in Columbus to gather in where, you know, you got a five-month notice. Hey, in five months, Jesus is going to come. We're going to throw this big evangelistic rally. It's going to be awesome. The hosting venue is somebody's house. So somehow, probably thousands of people are gathered in a rather small community, and the center point is Jesus within a home. And there are some, some bigwigs there. We, we see Pharisees and teachers of the law. These would have been kind of the religious elite, the placeholders. These would have been the people who were known. They had both religious influence and political influence. And so they've come to see who Jesus is. They want to answer that question. And for them, it might be Jesus is something that can advance my career, advance my position. They probably came with some of their own agendas. And they also came with a lot of misunderstandings. So that's the context of what's happening here as we start the story. So when we hit go and get into kind of these, these central characters, Jesus is in the house. It's probably packed wall to wall in the house. It probably the windows and doors are open so that the crowd immediately around it can hear and get some sense of what Jesus is doing and saying. And then there's probably a surrounding crowd that is just in the vicinity and knows Jesus is nearby, but can't really get close enough to get that one-on-one -on -one touch. So that's the picture when we pick up with what is a group of guys and their paralyzed friend. So we're gonna pick up here. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. Stop there. So, so what was breakfast like that morning? Hey, did you guys hear that Jesus is nearby? Maybe just a town up. We aren't told exactly where they came from, but probably in the region. And, and they have a paralyzed friend. And maybe the story went something like this. Hey, you know that guy that's been paralyzed for years? Dude, I saw him walking in the market yesterday. Jesus healed him. And, and you know the blind beggar that we've been giving money to? Dude, he's like saw me, like recognized me with his eyes and, and he can see. And I mean, it probably that demon possessed guy that's crazy, he ain't demon possessed no more. So there were probably those kind of stories going on that trigger for these men some motivation to say, we've got a paralyzed friend. If we get him to Jesus, 
it might change everything. And, and here's, here's their, their thinking. The worst thing that could happen is that we come back home and he's still, still paralyzed. So nothing changed. What's the big deal? It was worth the effort. But what if? What if we bring him and this guy who heals people helps our friend walk? Then, then it'll be changed forever. Wouldn't it be worth it? Wouldn't it be amazing? So we aren't told how far they traveled, but it's unlikely that this is just, you know, a hundred yard walk. This is likely a pretty significant journey of carrying a guy who is paralyzed. So some dead weight. So it wasn't easy. It wasn't casual. They, they exerted. They, they, they put some sweat equity into it. So put yourself in their shoes. Remember what they encounter. In fact, we read it here. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Their plan is clear. And, and they, they want to come with that agenda. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And be, Okay, go ahead and go to the next one, guys but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. So they get to the edge of the town and, oh man, there's a lot of people here. And maybe begin to work their way through the crowd near and near the house and realizing there's no way we're getting in. The crowd's so big, we can't, we aren't even gonna get near the house maybe, let alone in it. We're gonna have to work hard just to get proximity. So they have to make a decision at that point. They have to decide will we do whatever it takes for our friend? Or are we just going to give up and go home? And they make a life-changing decision for their friend and for themselves. And we see it in the next line. They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Okay, you could like easily read this and like, okay, that's kind of cool. Do you get what just happened? They went up on the roof of the house. So somehow there was either side stairs or they got a ladder. I don't, it doesn't describe how, we know they got on the roof. And when they got up there, it wasn't like, oh, look, here's a skylight with a nice little trap door. Let's open it up. This was a solid roof. And they're standing up there, paralyzed friend on the mat, looking down going, Jesus is four feet below this spot. We are four feet from the guy who can change our friend's life. And all that's between us and Jesus is a roof. And their awesome decision, which probably indicates that they're more in the 18 to 20 range and not in the 30 and 40 year old homeowner range, is it's just a roof. Get it out of here. Okay, so, so on the top side of the roof, the experience is what? Get down and grab a tile and start pulling. Maybe one of them got a little crowbar with a stick or something, and they start ripping that thing up. So when you're on the top side, it's not that bad. You're just making a hole. But the people on the inside are having a multimedia experience. Okay, things just changed. It's probably a relatively dimly lit room because it was, they didn't have electricity, remember? So the best light is probably natural light, except it's wall-to-wall -wall people. It's probably stuffy and nasty. And all of a sudden, Jesus is teaching. I mean, especially because this is like a holy and sacred moment. So apparently, Jesus would have, you know, very demure, very calm. And all of a sudden, like drywall shrapnels hitting him in the head. And the Pharisees, who would have been in their finest because they're coming to see this rabbi, all of a sudden all their pretty clothes are getting dirt and sticks and mud on them. And they're probably looking up like, what? And, and there's no way that they did this without some significant chunks coming down, right? So some guy's like, I didn't bring my hard hat. Do not do this. This is not OSHA certified. But those guys made a hole big enough to lower their friend down. And I don't know what Jesus did. Man, there's sometimes I wish I could see his face if he's like, this is gonna be awesome. 
because they lower their friend down in front of them. And they got to be over that hole going, come on, come on, let this be the one. Let, come on, Jesus, be who, you, be, be who we think you are. Change everything for our friend. And in looking down in that hole, here's what they see. A paralyzed man in front of the Son of God surrounded by a lot of religious people who think they know who Jesus is and he's going to turn their world upside down. And when he saw their faith, but by the way, whose faith? The guys in the roof, the ones who dug a hole in a ceiling and wrecked the roof. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. So the guys who just tore up the roof were like, sweet. We got, we had, we had a little different goal. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? Go ahead. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? And let me ask you the question, which would be easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? And here's the answer. It is easy for me to casually to say to anybody, your sins are forgiven, and you can't prove that I'm wrong. Because there's not a lot of evidence, at least in the short term, that I did it or didn't do it. But if I tell you to rise, get up and walk, and you've been paralyzed your whole life, it'll be instantly evident whether I'm a fraud or I'm the real deal. And so Jesus just says, watch. You're going to know that his sins are forgiven because I'm going to show you what you think is impossible. So here's what happens but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And in that moment, when Jesus encounters us in our need and he says, I'm about to change your life, that key statement changes everything. And then we have the rest of the story here. And immediately he rose up before them and he picked up what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. And amazement great word, seized. They were overcome. They instantly grasped what had happened, seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now, there's got to be a rest of this story, right? We know the guy gets up and he walks outside, and don't you think his buddies are like scrambling off the roof? And when they get down there, I mean, I remember, was it two years ago, OSU won the national championship, and that celebration on the field, I mean, there was euphoria, there was confetti, there was joy unbridled. I think it paled in comparison to a group of friends and a guy who was paralyzed who can now walk. And I don't know what their walk home was like, but I can imagine. And if there was a Tom's ice cream bowl on the way, they celebrated because at North Terrace, we celebrate with ice cream. This is part of our values. It's our sixth value. One more bowl of ice cream. Okay, so pretty, pretty amazing story. And the final outcome is all the glory goes to God. Everybody stood in awe. They were seized by awe and amazement at what God had done. So that's a great story, right? Let's, let's, let's kind of just apply a few thoughts to this that we're going to use the rest of our time together. The first is this. These guys were whatever it takes kind of guys. They were willing to wreck the roof, even if it meant the homeowner was going to be mad, because that's a guy we didn't even talk about. He's over in the corner going, I thought I was going to have Jesus over and it was going to be a happy little pretty time. Now I got to prepare the roof? Or... In, in, in our case, you know, are we whatever it takes people? But these guys were. 
and they were willing to wreck the roof. Here's a second a second thought, but it's a tension that begins to easily develop when a barrier is present. And that is that there will be insiders versus outsiders. There will be some people who are near uh, what we all want, and there'll be those who are on the outside looking in wondering, how can I get that? And what often happens, and I, I bet you would relate to this and understand it, if you're on the inside, you become somewhat territorial about protecting what you have, and the mindset is, if others get it, I might lose it. And outsiders often say, it's what I need more than anything. I would finally be happy if I finally got it. And in this case, these guys said, if we can just get our friend to Jesus, the chance is it'll change his life forever and ours by extension. And so they were willing to do whatever it could. Now, the insiders were not, like, they didn't sit there that day and go, how can we keep every paralyzed person away from Jesus? It wasn't their, like, stated mission and intent. But sometimes by passive activity, our behaviors create barriers that we did not intend and keep people away from Jesus, who is what they need more than anything else. And then here's a final thought. It's really more of a question. And it's something I want you to think about as we talk about some barriers in our world. And it's this, what matters to you most? In your world and life, what matters to you most? Because what you value is often what you will fight for and protect. But what if God gave you a value system that's different from anything else in the world? And then instead of fighting to protect the type of things that maybe the world values, you would fight for people to make sure they get what God is offering more than anything else. But our hearts don't often beat, don't always beat in rhythm with God's. So I wanna spend time taking kind of those concepts and apply them to a few barriers that I think we encounter in church um, and, and the world pretty frequently. So here's the first one, fear. I think fear is a real barrier, a real wall for us to do what God wants us to do but also for people to begin to engage with Jesus in a healthy way. And if we wanna be like Jesus and we need to remove the barriers that are keeping people from Jesus, what can we do to remove fear? Well, the first thing is we need to remember the kind of people we are. And we are not weak, jelly-kneed, passive, surrendering sheep. We are filled with the Spirit of God. And Satan's best thing that he can do is convince us that we've somehow lost or that we do not have the ability or power to do what God is inviting us to do. And in that moment of fear, we come up to the line of what we know we can do on our own power. And we step right up to it. And we go, okay, God, I'm doing everything I can. And he goes, no. Well, he actually might go, yeah, you're right. You're doing everything you can, but you're not doing everything that I can do through you. If you'll just take one more step beyond what you know how to do and trust me into this world of faith, I'll take you places better than you could ever imagine. But this is that barrier of fear. And the only way I know to overcome it is faith. But the distance between what we know how to do under our own power and strength and a step of faith is not one step. Sometimes it feels like a step of a thousand miles over a chasm a thousand miles deep. And y'all know what I'm talking about? Because you sit there and you tremble and you go, but what if, but what if, but what if, what, what? And, 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 and all the what ifs on this side of that step, as soon as we step, the, the power 
power of God surpasses our best imagining. He's got it. He's never failed. He's a 1,000%, never failed, absolutely shows up every time. And so if he's saying, trust me with this step, he's just waiting on us. It's not a if he'll do it. It's a matter of the details. So when you're standing on this side of fear, when someone is waiting to get to Jesus through that barrier of fear, the first step is the hardest. But once you take it, God launches us forward. Now go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. There's this amazing verse. I'm going to call this my Urban Meyer verse for the morning. I'm about to send you out on the field to play. Here's my pep rally cry. Here's what I want you to go out thinking about. For God gave us a spear, spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Of power, of love, of self-control. If that's the spirit in you, then you don't have jelly need, weak, surrendering sheep spirits in you. You got a lion's roar in you that when you act on it, Satan goes, oh crud, they're on to me. And he flees in the face of it. But the more he can convince us, the more he gets us to stay on our side. And there are people that if we were willing to step through that barrier of fear and tear it down and wreck that roof, they would find Jesus. Because here's what's happened to me and I bet it's happened to you. I'm at a coffee shop. And I'm just talking to somebody and we're talking about casual stuff. And all of a sudden, that internal dialogue starts going, you need to tell them about Jesus. You need to tell them about what's going on in your life, what God's doing. And I instantly start getting like the temperature rises and my skin turns red and the cold sweats kick in. And I'm the minister. Even the minister feels that way. And I'm like, dude, if I start talking, I won't know what to say. I'll mess it up. I can't do it. I I go into the full I can't mode. And that's my line. And I've got to take that one step that just says, God, I'm going to start walking out here and you better show up because if not, we're in trouble. But he keeps showing up. Every time I walk, he shows up. And I'm promising you, he will show up. Just take the step. Don't live a life of I wish I would have. Live a bold life that says, I'm glad I did. And look at what God did with me and through me. Because you are not a timid people full of fear. Because that's the spirit of the devil. You are a powerful people, a loving people, a people of great control who work with God, for God, and you tear down the barriers that would keep people from his son, Jesus Christ. So what matters most to you? Being safe or risking it all so that somebody else could gain everything? Just something to think about. All right, here's another one. Comfort. Well, we like our comfort, don't we? USA, America, especially the church. Let's just have things on our terms and our way. And, and man, I'm, I'm first in line on this. I like my air conditioning. And when it's cold, I like my heat. And I, in church, I like my padded pews and padded chairs. A couple weekends ago, we did a marriage retreat on every evaluation form. And I would agree with this 100%. Can we not use the wood chairs next time? They were hard. Because about an hour in, you were like, oh, these are good chairs. About two hours in, you're like, oh, that's a hard chair. About hour five and six, you're like, I may never walk again. And, 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 and I get it. I know where that comes from. And that's just one example. 
but we like things the way we like them. But would we still be a church and would you still come if we only had a 20 by 20 room that wasn't heated or cooled and had a single light bulb and a cement floor and one Bible or a few pages of the Bible, would you still come and be God's people? I mean, part of you is probably like, well, yeah, but I'm glad it's a theoretical exercise. But it's not. We have brothers and sisters around the world. They can't even imagine what we're experiencing right now. So I would say to us who have much, this comes with great responsibility to be generous and be bold and not become so comfortable that we become numb to the needs of the world around us because God disturb us and break us down if somehow our comfort becomes more important than somebody's discovering who Jesus is. And our comfort can show up on Sunday mornings like, I didn't get the parking spot I wanted. The coffee wasn't the right flavor. Man, that preacher didn't say things that made me happy. I didn't sing the songs I wanted and the communion juice was flat. Well, we don't carbonate anyway, so deal with it. Now listen to me. I've heard it said this way, that the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus, should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. And I want to say that again because I think it's important. The gospel of Jesus should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. So what does that look like in our daily life? Let me break it down for you this way. That if you are in this world and a broken person, and can we all be honest, we're all broken people who need Jesus. But if you haven't found that hope through Jesus yet, then Jesus is the greatest news in the world and he should bring you comfort. That out of your brokenness, there is new life, there is hope. And that the people who represent Jesus should be agents who bring you comfort and bring you hope and peace and healing. But if we're already part of God's family, then the gospel of Jesus, who Jesus is, while it brings a measure of comfort because of the confidence we have of who he is and what he's already done on our behalf, it should then afflict us with the burdens of what he cared about most. And that is, people are going to go to hell unless we get uncomfortable. Unless we get over what matters most to us that doesn't match what matters most to God. And we're going to stand before God someday and he's going to say, here's what it's about. And we're going to be like, oh, why didn't you tell me? He's going to be like, I did. God, take away our padded chairs if we miss the point of who you are. God, level us. Tear down every barrier of comfort so we are absolutely desperate for you so that we will pursue those who are desperate for you. And if we've forgotten what it's like to be desperate for God, then break our hearts. Shatter us with the power of your gospel so we never forget. Because that roof gets really solid, really easy. And we didn't set out to lose the point. But we get used to doing what we've always done the way we've always done it. And I would ask and I would pray that you would look at yourself and say, have I made it too much about me and what I want and what I prefer? And do I need to start thinking about what it would take so my friends and my family would come and discover who Jesus Christ is? Let me take you another barrier. This one's geography. 
And, and, and it's important because it's really easy. And I think this is a cousin of comfort, but, but it's important to highlight this one in particular. It's easy to only worry about those who are in your immediate vicinity. And, and North Terrace, historically, you have been a powerful church and done a great job of reaching this immediate community. And I give praise to God for your faithfulness. Good job. But he's starting to do something that's messing with us in all the right ways. He's going ahead of us and showing us how you, you, his people, are fulfilling the Great Commission. Because in Matthew chapter 28, it says these words, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. These are his last words to the disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's go back one slide, one word. It's this first word. Wow, okay, you are awake. Here, we're ready. We're gonna sprint to the finish. Go. Jesus said, go. Now, this is like an imperative command word. It's not optional. So if you follow Jesus, you are somebody who goes. I like our pews. Well, they're chairs, so they aren't pews. I like where we sit. I like our building. I'm glad it's a tool. But this is not church. It happens to be a building where the church gathers. But sometimes the church is showing up down in McConnellsville, which is awesome because I dig McConnellsville. And last week, we had some young lady in middle school come from Beverly, Ohio, which is even further south than McConnellsville. So I don't know what your traffic ride was like today, but she came an hour and 10 minutes. Go God. And out east, I mean, we're like almost out to 77 now. I don't know what y'all are doing, but it's like every time you stop for gas, you must be telling somebody about Jesus. Check out this map. It's messed with us in all the right ways. So, okay, so Zanesville. This is people who've been coming to North Terrace regularly for a while. It's called geobatching. And, and, and we put it all in here. And look, okay, so you're not surprised, right? Zanesville, it's closest, it makes sense. But look, check out this out here. People in Cambridge are discovering Jesus through North Terrace. God, you're going ahead of us. McConnellsville, we're starting to get people. People from Columbus, you know how many churches are in Columbus and some people are coming to join us? That doesn't make sense to me, but go God. <laughs> okay, and then up north, I mean, uh, whatever God's doing, he's doing it through you. And you're obeying. And the barriers of what could be geography that said, well, if you live 10 minutes or closer, you can come to church. We're saying zip codes don't matter one bit to the kingdom of God because there's one zip code that matters and it's basically Jesus. And he's, he can be with us wherever. So, God's starting to really have a regional presence through you. What does that mean? I don't know, but we're praying about it because I don't think he's being subtle. I don't think you're being passive. I think you're saying we're gonna wreck the roof of distance and help as many people as possible discover who Jesus Christ is. Keep it up, be bold, be courageous. And who knows what lies in the future, but let's find out together, huh? That'd be pretty amazing. What would it take for God to own Southeast Ohio for him? It would take you, trust in him. What would it take for Ohio to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
it'll take you because that's always been his plan. What would it take to change the United States and the world for God? It'll take you because you are his people and you are his first and best plan. And when you obey God and wreck the roof of your fear, of your comfort and the geography, the world is changed. And Jesus is the wrecking ball who showed us the way. So we don't have to figure this out from scratch. We just model what he did. See, he was, he was the first barrier breaker that really showed us the way, right? He was in heaven. And he came to earth and you're like, well, he's Jesus. That was pretty easy. Really? Have you read the prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane where he's negotiating with God and wrestling like, God, is there any other way for us to do this? Because if there is, I'd like to try it. But not my will, but yours be done. He didn't let fear stop him. What about this? Comfort? You think heaven was comfortable for Jesus? Absolutely. Everything in heaven was to worship and serve him. And he left that behind to come down and be like you and me, to get hungry, to get tired, to get broken and beaten and nailed to a cross and die and be buried. But he discovered new life through, Jesus, through God the Father and he offers it to us now. So he left all that comfort behind so we could have comfort no matter how big the storm of life you're in, no matter how great the pain you're experiencing, no matter how lonely you are, Jesus showed us the way and he is the hope and he has been where you are. And geography, I don't know what the distance, you sure don't measure it in miles between heaven and earth, but he came so we could go home. So I want you to go home. And it isn't gonna happen through Chris Steele. It isn't gonna happen through Brian leading a song. It's gonna happen because Jesus has paved the way home. And if there's one more barrier keeping from you starting that road home, let's wreck the roof. Let's get you home. See, every... Every year from about age 11 to 13. On Sunday morning, we would stand at the end of a service and sing what we call the invitation song. We're about to do it here. And Chris Steele, a little preteen boy, would stand up and he'd hear in his head and heart, you need to go. You need to, you need to follow me, Chris. And I would go, I know, I know, I know. But there's a crowd and I'm terrified of crowds. <laughs> God, God gets some And I was terrified of water. And if I go up there, they'll baptize me. I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I want to, but I don't. And I would stand and I would literally grip that chair in front of me and the song would finish and I would go home with one more regret. Look, don't go home with any regrets today. Wreck that final roof that's keeping you from Jesus. So we're going to stand and sing. And if you're ready to wreck the roof between you and Jesus, because he's ready to wreck it, come forward so he can say your sins are forgiven. Let's stand and sing.